In Viking times, a thing was a gathering, a place where leaders and warriors could meet and talk. In the 21st century, our thing is a virtual place where history academics and enthusiasts from around the world can come together to share knowledge. I'm your host, Miranda Schmiederer. Hold on to your helmets for this episode of That Jorvik Viking Thing podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. Last season, we did a deep dive on the Coppergate excavation, the dig that changed our understanding of Vikings forever. In episode 8, we spoke with Rachel Cutler, who told us all about the fantastic Viking-era finds uncovered during the dig. One of the most interesting artifacts was an almost complete Viking sock. If you want to hear more about the sock itself, make sure to check out that episode. The sock was made using a technique called null binding, and today we have an expert on null binding with us, Emma Bruni Boast. First of all, Bruni, thank you so much for agreeing to this interview. We're very excited to speak to you. You're welcome. So first of all, um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. My name is Emma Boast. I am a Viking Age archaeologist and heritage uh, crafter. I'm based in York uh, in the UK. What I mainly do at present is I run my own null binding business, um, which is specializing in this ancient craft and teaching it and promoting it and safeguarding it for future generations. So it's part of my wider remit, if you like, of archaeology, heritage and supporting the arts and crafts in the UK. That's what I do. That's very good. So, well, we talked a little bit last season about the Coppergate sock and how it was made with the technique that you just mentioned, null binding. You have a really strong connection with null binding. Can you tell us a little bit about what null binding is? So null binding is one of the many different terms that gets used to describe an ancient fiber technique whereby you're using one single needle and long lengths of yarn, normally sort of about in foot, foot long lengths, to create specific stitches to make items like hats, socks, gloves. Different cultures at different time periods have used this technique to make basketry and bags um, and other types of home accessories and goods as well. Um, And different types of fibres have been used in the past too. But my specialism is mainly on the Viking application of null binding, as null binding is the Scandinavian term for this craft. Um, And yeah, the whole skill around this ancient fibre craft is about the inherent understanding of passed down skill and knowledge. So how we can take an example like the Coppergate sock, which is a wonderfully preserved piece of archaeological evidence, and we can assess it and look at it from a heritage craft point of view and an archaeological point of view, and we can try and figure out not only how it was made, but what kind of decisions and choices the individual crafter may have made a thousand years ago when they were sitting there and deciding to make a sock at that time. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot more that goes into sort of null binding as a heritage craft um, from its archaeological founding, because there are so many other different little disciplines that feed into it. And of course, when we have the archaeology preserved, all that evidence is already there. We can use that as a really good, strong foundation for learning how to apply the stitches and create shape and form and structure. So, yeah, the Coppergate sock is the only surviving piece of archaeological 
piece of null binding in the UK from the Viking Age. So it's very, very important. It's internationally significant. Um, and for me, as a heritage crafter, this is, you know, my go-to example explaining null binding to people. The Coppergate Sock is, you know, one of the best preserved examples that people should certainly go and visit. I love that you mentioned that you look at their techniques and like the decisions they made when crafting it. I, I do a little bit of like knitting and stuff as well. I love that in a thousand years, someone might look at a scarf at, at a stitch I dropped <laughs> and, and judge me for it. <laughs> you need to. <laughs> um, so you mentioned that you focus on Viking stuff, but you said that null binding was across many cultures. Where else do we have examples of, of historic null binding? So um, one of the earliest examples of non-binding that we have across the world is actually from a, a very small fragment of pieces of sock that was excavated in Israel. And that dates to around 6,500 BC. So we have got early Mesolithic null binding and we have got a Stone Age null binding as well. It obviously comes through into the Iron Age and we get sort of small fragmented pieces of null binding that survives. But like I mentioned, it's important to bear in mind because it's normally done with wool materials or uh, bust fibres. So it's your plant fibres like your nettle or your hemp. Obviously, depending on the soil conditions, sometimes these remains survive and sometimes they don't. So we're a bit limited as to the level of preservation. But yes, as well as it being sort of in the Middle East, we have the Scandinavian examples that date back to prehistory. We also have uh, South American examples, Peruvian examples of null binding. So when you take null binding as a world craft, if you like, at different points across the historical timeline, different cultures that haven't necessarily interacted with each other have come up with their own unique way of making items and cordage to be able to produce null bound items and they've all got their own unique style, their own unique stitches. And that's why indeed we've got so many different types of variation in fiber and stitch work in null binding, because like you mentioned, every crafter has got their own uniqueness. You know, when you're learning, first learning a craft, you are going to be putting certain nuances and little additions into your items as you learn. Whereas as you become more proficient in that, you're going to be able to round off your items and obviously share that skill with others so where the level of preservation allows we can see items that have been made by younger members of society maybe or those that are more advanced that have a more advanced understanding of this particular craft or skill too and that's again what we see in the Coppergate sock you can see that the stitching is extremely fine use two ply yarn so it's a very finely applied yarn that's been used to null bind the york stitch and the york stitch is the only example of this stitch that has been found so this is one person's unique interpretation of making this item in this way which is just fascinating why did uh, null binding fall out of fashion and whenabouts did that happen so Null binding, one of the reasons that um, null binding is so difficult to try and string a narrative, like a historical narrative together with, is because of this sporadic amount of archaeological evidence that we've got for. So we know that null binding certainly occurs in the prehistoric period through the Roman period into the Anglo-Scandinavian period. However, into the 12th century, what we start to see are different changes and uh, adaptions to the way textile production is being made in Central Europe. So with the introduction of the spinning wheel and with 
people looking to develop ways of making textiles quicker to be able to get the volume out, we start to see the introduction of Dutch knitting. So that's your, your traditional two needle knitting that comes in. So rather than relying on just one single needle to do one item at a time, you're actually allowed to make items quicker at a bigger volume. So you can obviously sell your finished bolts of cloth quicker in this particular form. So it's from the 12th century onwards that we start to see null binding in northern Europe and Scandinavia. It starts to be impacted a bit by this, but in certain countries, like in Sweden, for example, null binding has got a really nice long craft history. It was always taught to family members. Individual family stitches developed and different techniques were developed. And that carried all the way through into the 18th and 19th century, whereas other cultures and countries that have had this craft interaction, we lost it. So in the UK, for example, we don't see and haven't found any, at the moment, remains of null binding all the way from the Viking Age. And we start to see from the 18th and the 19th century, more remains of knitting and crochery starting to appear. Um, it's sort of only in the, at the turn of the century, sort of around the 1920s, when this, you know, the spark of interest of archaeology and antiquarianism and discovering new things and rediscovering new things starts to spark interest again, that we start to see small little pockets of uh, interested fibre workers that start to go, oh, what about this? And oh, what about that? And oh, we found this from a different culture. Do you think we have this in our culture? And the discussion starts to, to broaden um, and it starts to get revisited a little bit into sort of the 1930s, 40s and 50s in the UK. And people start to ask questions a bit more about like, well, where, where did null binding come from? And then, of course, in the 1970s is when the Coppergate excavation occurred and this beautiful wonderful gnarl-bound sock appears in the archaeology and that reinvigorates the discussion again about heritage crafts and crafting and fiber work and how people in the past made the things that they need so yeah it's a it's a very undulating and complex timeline um, and there are many scholars and many uh, books that have been written that attempt to bring this all together some do it better than others but it is a never evolving sort of uh, discipline, really, because it's always governed by things that we uncover and we discover within the archaeology. And it's always based upon how those items then fit within the culture that we're talking about at that particular time. So, yeah, there's always things ever evolving. Well, what other kind of crafting then did the Vikings do? I'm sure this wasn't the, the only kind of um, crafting technique that they had. Can you give us other examples of what they might have done? Yeah, sure. So the important thing to bear in mind with sort of Viking Age culture at this time is that there aren't any shops. You know, everything that you need, you have to either make yourself. So it has to be a learned skill, either within your family unit or within your wider unit. Or, especially when we talk about moving forward into the Viking Age, into the 10th century, like at Jorvik, you then start to see the development of specific craft skills and skills that are being applied as a trade, which is why you have the cup maker, the leather worker, the blacksmith. 
you know, the textile worker may well be making items like tablet braid, you know, dyeing and fulling cloth. You might have the tanner that is preparing the skins, but they might be doing that as an added skill to help, you know, fund their family. But if they are good enough at it over a period of time, obviously they'll be then able to demand a price, a fee, an exchange from other members of the community to be able to offer those services to others, which is why we have such a variation in craft skill at Coppergate, because you've got those people that are like, well, I need a pair of shoes, so I'm going to make myself a pair of shoes. And they will fulfill the purpose of a shoe, but they won't necessarily be the best made. And then, of course, you have the leather worker that has got a very high level of skill and knowledge and understanding of working with those raw materials, they are able to obviously ply their craft and their specialism even on a 10th century street because they are proficient at that craft, at what they do. So, yeah, in the 10th century, in England in particular, we start to see this development of craft specialisation, which is really, really interesting. Definitely. So as far as no binding today, then it's a bit of a dying art, but you've done some work to counteract that, haven't you? So can you tell us a little bit about what you've done? So null binding is, as the modern sort of fibre craft, has always been a little bit hidden and misunderstood in the modern world of knitting, crochet, other fibre arts as well. So as a heritage crafter, my job is to try and bring that to the forefront and to try and safeguard it for future use. And I do this by interacting with people to explain and engage with them the fact that null binding, although it's an ancient heritage craft and was used in the past, and we can use this to inform and educate people on the history and archaeology of this skill, but it's also very, very relevant to the modern world, you know, as a as a method of being able to create something with your hands, as a method of being able to use it to make your own everyday items. Null binding is very versatile. It's very durable. One of the great benefits with null binding as a craft is that because you're doing one stitch at a time, you are only needing to focus your attention on one piece at a time. So you don't have to apply that whole skill set and knowledge like you would do if you're doing knitting and crochet and you have to work in great big lengths of yarn and it's all about the speed and the volume that you can create. So it it very much sort of fits into the, the everyday life of people, which why people tend to find that it's very accessible. You know, you can pick it up, you can put it down. It's not going to unravel as you place it down because every knot interlocks. And what I've been trying to do with the Heritage Craft Association in um, 2018, I submitted a listing to try and get null binding safeguarded and put on the red list of endangered crafts. And I'm pleased to say that that's been successful. So yep, null binding is now a uh, on the red list of endangered crafts in the UK, which is a double-edged sword, really, because it's it's good that it's there because it recognises that it's a skill and that there are individuals like myself that are still teaching this craft, this ancient skill. But it also means that there aren't enough professional individuals in the UK either using it as a full-time job or using it as a full medium of craft teaching to be able to keep it going for the future. So the Red List of Endangered Crafts is a catalogue, a yearly catalogue that gets reevaluated 
based on all of these different skills and ancient crafts for people to recognize what is being lost within our intangible cultural heritage. And the cultural heritage of the UK is obviously very rich, it's very vast, but there are practical skills like null binding that because they occurred in the past, they get sort of forgotten about if people don't do them. Well, fair enough. Yeah, exactly. So if you engage with this craft and this skill, what I've been trying to do is do the independent research and give the sources and the materials and all the uh, necessary information to the Heritage Craft Association to be able to support fellow null binders, you know, people that are working in this craft to be able to boost others and support others so that this craft can carry on for future generations. But like I say, by no means, null binding isn't the only um, heritage craft on the list, sadly. And actually this week, they have just released the Heritage Craft Association 2021 version. So there are things like glass blowing and basketry and thatching and things such as that that go on the list. So although th- these items and these crafts may have a historical and an archaeological grounding, they're all still very relevant to the modern world it's just whether people perceive the value in them well hopefully like through your work more and more people will learn about null binding in the first place but even once it was on the red list you you haven't stopped advocating for null binding you currently have a shop going dedicated to it can you tell us a little bit about that Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, I mentioned it briefly earlier. I mean, my sort of foundation has always been from the archaeology and the heritage. So from a a long time ago, I decided that I wanted to focus all my energy into making, promoting, creating resources and teaching materials to safeguard this ancient craft. So my shop name is called Nidvelnir, which comes from Norse mythology. It's the realm of the dwarves. And I like to think that I'm quite an industrious person and keep on going. So I thought that was quite an apt fit <laughs> um but uh yeah what i've been doing with my historical sort of craft shop if you like is just not only supplying and making items for people in heritage reenactment um and living history but also creating um null binding for beginners kits and needles and you know booklets to be able to teach people that might see this craft from afar and think, oh, I'd like to give that a go, but I'm really not too sure about how all of this starts, to give people the confidence and the bare basics of this foundation to then branch out on their own null binding crafting journey, really. So yeah, it's got many different threads, many different threads. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're also involved in a project now on Coney Street, our high street here in York, aren't you? Um, can you what, what can you tell us about that? In April this year, when everything started to sort of improve a little bit, um, I decided to join the wonderful um, crafting and artist collective at Fabrication on Coney Street. And it's a a group of individuals that sort of band together in York. And we're all local artists and makers and heritage crafters. And it means that we have a shop platform in York to be able to sell our wares to the public. Because as an individual crafter, it's obviously very difficult to be able to get the public facing avenue that you need to engage with your items so this came up as an opportunity and has been brilliant so far but fabrication is run by uh, a lady called Dawn Wood who is uh, also a heritage reenactor has got many many years of uh, heritage crafts expertise and last year 
she actually fund, got funding to be able to do the Coney Street Heritage Project, which is whereby they did research into the local York archives to figure out and understand how much of a crafting and heritage hub Coney Street was sort of from the 12th to the 18th century. And in fact, there are many, many pieces of evidence and documentation to suggest that Coney Street really was a bustling hive of all different types of craftsmen and women, from printmakers to coopers, everything that you could think of would be along Coney Street. So that's fascinating, not only as a heritage project, but what that does to us modern makers is it gives us a bit of confidence, <laughs> gives me confidence, and a bit of um, hope and upliftingness to be able to think, well, all these people back in the past managed to make their living and engage with their communities around them to help support them in their craft and their business. So hopefully with myself and my colleagues at Fabrication, what we can try and do is, you know, continue demonstrating and showing what our skills are with all our various different craft specialisms. And hopefully the public will see them and take value in them. And, you know, we'll slowly but surely start building Coney Street up again to be this little crafting heritage quarter. That would be fun. <laughs> that would be incredible. Definitely. Well, I hope that that comes true. That would be just the best. So it would be amazing <laughs> if it was just full of craftspeople. I would absolutely love that. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for doing this interview. I definitely learned a lot. I think our listeners will as well. Um, where can our listeners find you? Are you on Facebook or, or Instagram or anything like that? Yep, I certainly am. Yeah, if you do any search on any search engine, um, you'll be able to find me under my shop name, which is Nidbelnir. Um, I'm on Facebook. I have an Instagram page. I have an Etsy shop. I have a Heritage Craft Association link as well. So yeah, if you find one of those links to do with sort of null binding in York, you'll be able to find me for sure. And I've got YouTube demonstrations and such as well. So yeah, people will be able to find me. I'm the lady with the red hair. You'll, you'll be you'll be able to find me. <laughs> A very special thanks to Bruni for being our guest. You can find Bruni on all of her social media platforms and check us out on Instagram at Jorvik Viking to see some more examples of null binding. Thanks for listening to that Jorvik Viking Thing podcast. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and anywhere you get your podcasts. Don't forget to rate and leave us a review. And if you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend. It's the best way to help support your favorite Viking podcast. That Jorvik Viking Thing podcast is a production of the Jorvik Group and York Archaeological Trust. Researched by Miranda Schmiederer and Ashley Fisher. Written and produced by Ashley Fisher. Sound designed and edited by Miranda Schmiederer.